This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Her name is Sarah Cohn. She is the founder and managing partner of Social Impact Capital, a venture capital investing uh, with a really interesting slant, uh, a tremendous track record, which we're not allowed to discuss publicly, and a list of A-list limited partners, which I'm also sworn to secrecy on, but you can trust me when I say, wow, these are some really bold-faced names, Um, certainly ones that anybody who tracks investing, politics, venture capital, technology uh, would would surely recognize. Uh, Sarah has really a, a fascinating work history and a fascinating approach to disrupting um, the world of venture capital. Her approach is really to look for companies that not only are making a difference in the world, but can produce a strong internal rate of return. Uh, Her philosophy is if you really want to impact the world, well, build a a billion-dollar company and see how that changes how everybody lives, operates, and behaves in the real world. It's really um, quite fascinating. She's really charming and delightful and and really, really intelligent um, with just uh, the world's craziest Rolodex and some really interesting stories. So I think you'll find this really intriguing. I had a great time speaking with her. With no further ado, my conversation with Social Impact Capital's Sarah Cohn. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Sarah Cohn. She is the founder of Social Impact Capital. She began her career at the VC group Omidyar Network. Uh, Pierre Omidyar was the founder of eBay. She was an associate at Illuminate Ventures, uh, where she worked on B2B software as a service uh, in Silicon Valley venture capital. Uh, in addition, she worked at the nonprofit Public Knowledge uh, Group, a, a tech policy, public policy group. Sarah Cohn, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you for having me. I, I mangled your background, but really, to state it more conversationally, you've worked at a number of the big giant tech firms, right? In in the early days of your career, uh, Google and others. Uh, you've been moving in venture capital circles for a long time, and your VC, Social Impact, focuses on more than just technology. Tell us a little bit about what Social Impact Capital does. So we are a venture capital firm, um, but we go in as early as possible into what we call the best ideas and impact, which we are th- we think are the companies most likely to have, you know, both make venture capital profits, but also have an incredible, you know, world changing positive effect on the world. So it's both. It's not just socially responsible or impact investing for its own sake. You have limited partners, and they're expecting a serious return on investment. Exactly. Um, I think what's pretty hilarious about my firm is that, in fact, um, my LPs are sort of this who's who of capitalism, and they re- I don't really have a single impact investor in the firm um, at the moment. And they, um, I actually even have two LPs that are on the record stating how stupid they think impact <laughs> investing is. So why um, do they give you money if they think what you do is stupid? Or are they looking past the impact side towards 
the yeah, investing well, I, side. I asked one of them one time, I was like, why are you in this firm anyway? And uh, he's, he replied to me, the performance. That's that's the interest. And we, I, I know you are bound by non-disclosure rules. You can't say who these people are, but I know who some of them are, and they are front page name brand investors. Is that a fair statement? They are. Does that impact how you look at the world, or is it it would be the same if it was just a big faceless institution? Um, well, I have it's sort of an internal joke at our firm because I refer to them as widows and orphans. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a, sort of a joke because, of course, they're you know all sort Neither. of billionaires that right. are able to take <laughs> on early risk in a young venture capital firm. Um, but it's aspirational because we aim, you know, to become a top tier firm that produces such great returns that I am allowed to manage the money of widows and orphans. So, so let's talk a little bit about that because I, I think that's kind of interesting. There are friends and family rounds when somebody first gets an idea, and then there's the angel round, and eventually you move to big firms, A rounds, B rounds, the C round. Where is social impact in that spectrum of? early to late venture investments? We are the earliest possible. Um, We like to go in, we'll do anything in the seed stage. So we'll do, you know, pre-seed, the seed stage has become even more segmented. Mm -hmm. Um, So we'll do, but we'll do anything in the seed stage. We'll do pre-seed, we'll do seed, we'll do seed extensions, um, sort of anything in the early days. And then what we do is what we specialize is is in creating these social impact companies, getting them into the place where they're real businesses, and then getting them led by top tier venture capital firms in the Series A. And so far at the firm, we have an 83% rate of doing that. Meaning that you do a seeded investment, but eventually you bring in additional VCs. Exactly. The downstream money is 83%, you know, from top tier firms. I love it because I get my you know, and the founders get their philanthropic business plots then funded by commercial capital um, because they are good businesses. And so they're able to do that. And now how can you tell if you're so early stage, they really, it's a business plan, it's a couple of founders, but typically there isn't a product, there's barely a website. Is it more idea than actual business? It definitely is. We're going in... um, extremely early and so i'm making these you know pretty risky bets Uh on um what we spend a lot of time in diligence we spend a lot of time with the founders and we just do our best but as in any venture capital portfolio you expect a you know a number of those to fail and then a number of them to succeed wildly and compensate for those failures so so let's talk about that distribution typically with a venture firm uh that are making let's call it a rounds so they're a little more developed there's it's not a finished product, but at least there's a product, some software, a website, something you can look at. Um, with those sort of A rounds, typically 10, 20% are total busts, another 30, 40%, maybe they break even, 10, 20% make some money, and it's a really small slice that really hits the ball out of the park. What's it like when you're doing earlier seed stage? I would imagine the failure rate is much higher. Well, at our firm, I mean, the funny thing about the venture capital industry is that you tend to, there's not data published on it that is very reliable. So you tend to only know what's going on in your firm and then sort of what you read in the media. Right. So 
I've read um, from on CB Insights that the failure rate for seed stage investing is that only 20% of the follow-on rounds get funding at all from mm-hmm. seed stage deals. In our firm, we actually have a 100% hit rate right now. Um, but you know, it's venture capital, so you don't really know anything until seven years, ten years down the line. It's um, it's all secret and it comes out. Long feedback cycles. Right. It's a it's a huge lag before. There's we a really huge find lag. It's it's pretty excellent though because what it creates is this sort of uncompetitive. It's I I always describe venture capital as the only uncompetitive field in finance. Why is that? It's because there are basically no good venture capitalists in the world. So when you so by the time you learn and you actually really get the knowledge, which can you know is seven to ten years down the line, it's this incredibly long lag time. So by the time you learn the lessons from that, all the technology has changed, all of the business models have changed, and the entire world has changed. So if you actually take those lessons and adopt them, which many venture capitalists do, then you're investing wrong in your next fund, and you see that play out over and over again. So I think that the only really good venture capitalists are these sort of intense, real-time learner venture capitalists. So it's sort of like looking at the light from a star. By the time the light gets to us, hey, that star could be gone for millions of years. Exactly. That's the perfect way to describe it. Quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about um, launching your own firm. You're here in New York, but you used to be out in Silicon Valley. What made you say, A, I want to kick off my own shop, and B, let's leave all those people behind on the West Coast and come to New York City? Well, I started my own fund because I see this incredible arbitrage opportunity and early stage impact investing that I was not, you know, able to kind of concentrate on that thesis anywhere else in the world. So is I it do too that. niche, too small? Why couldn't you concentrate on that elsewhere? Uh, well, what's wonderful is I always describe it as the, you know, it's almost like an invisibility cloak because primarily no one in the world believes that impact investing can actually produce top-tier returns. So I keep means, hearing, by the way, it's political, it's social. Yeah, I mean, I hear all... Li- it's self-indulgent, every- <laughs> luxury, junk. I just compl- I constantly hear this, and I, I constantly am like, VCs are like kind of always saying to me, like, Sarah, you're a great investor. You can just drop the, the social impact branding now. I'm like, guys, this is what's producing the return. But I realize... It used to kind of annoy me, but I, I realized that... This is actually my competitive advantage because it means that there's a ton of open ice here because no one else is, you know, coming into this Mm -hmm. field. So, you know, when I'm getting better valuations than anyone else in the VC industry, when I'm getting into better companies than anyone else in the VC industry, then they're sort of baffled. They still don't understand it. Um, so this is it's a it's a fantastic competitive advantage. Bafflement is a great yes. advantage. <laughs> it really is. Uh, you know, I'm kind of intrigued by the concept of cumulative advantage, where firms that have done well attract a network of better VCs, better better LPs, better companies. Do you see that in the social impact side, or has it not yet developed that far? Where cumulative advantage is, is accruing. I think cumulative advantage is um, one of the most important things to any really? VC firm, period. And one of our advisors for our firm, Ashby Monk, has actually written widely about this. Um, 
And we, how we have thought about it at our firm is that we have an unusual structure in that it's a solo GP firm, but I work with a wide variety of venture partners and advisors that all have pretty specific domain expertise uh-huh. and specific institutional you know, connections. What other venture firms are you working with as part of your broader network? Oh, I mean, all venture, it's a part of the industry that venture capital firms work with other venture capital right. firms. Every venture capital firm does that. I'm saying we Especially work- for follow-up rounds, B and C yeah, rounds? We work with a bunch of, you know, kind of at our firm, we work with a bunch of academics and, you know, um, kind of people in industry and people out in the world. Um, so more than just other venture right, funds. Right, other venture funds. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has been a, this has been an incredible accumulating advantage to us over time. What do you hear from your limited partners? Do they stay in close contact? How do you communicate with them? How often do you update them? I have you know a small number of them um, that you know I'm in pretty close contact with, and then you know most of them I send quarterly updates to mm-hmm. their people. And how do you source and find potential investments? I think that mo- you know we we basically scour the earth. I I you know we'll do anything to find an investment, and we look at everything. But we, I think most of our deals come in in two primary ways. One is through the um, advisory board and venture partner network that I just talked about, and then the other way is that we sort of have a reputation as being good foundation builders for seed stage companies. So I get a ton of deal flow through Series A and later VCs that go, hey, Sarah, I love this company. It's too you know, early, too early for me. For us, you yeah. should take it. And I'm like, thanks. I'll invest in this and get it into great shape for you and pass it along when pass it's back. You know, interesting to you. What When you say pass along, what sort of resources do you pour into besides just writing a check? What else do you do to help a startup company get off the ground and move forward? So we have these, the Venture Partner and Advisory Board are this immense resource for these people where we almost always will have the exact advice that you need for the exact problem that you have. Hmm. And we sort of match it on an ad hoc basis. So it's like, are you a biotech company that is wondering how to handle the FDA? Well, Linda Avey, who is the co-founder of 23andMe, is on our advisory board who knows a ton about that. So we just connect you for a call. Um, and it's a lot better than you know having some venture partner, or I mean venture partner at a venture capital firm mm-hmm. sort of pontificate on areas that they haven't had really, really intimate, familiar experience with. So it's the network. What about the specific day-to-day of running and building a a new firm? Um, You know, we tend to sort of be hands-off unless we're asked um, because we do a lot of upfront work um, into our companies. So we tend to not sort of have the, 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 you know, we need so much help in this company. You know, we tend to only kind of invest in the companies that are pretty fully formed. Mm-hmm. And then we're there to assist the entrepreneurs with the best of class resources when they have trouble. Um, but other than that, we try to stay out of their way of building huge companies. And and well, how how are the deals typically structured? What do they look like? What What does the entrepreneur give up and what do they get? So, I mean, the entrepreneur gives up equity mm-hmm. um, and then they Do they give of, up a controlling share, 30 percent, something? We usually try and target about 20 percent each share. Um, mm-hmm. it, it depends a little bit on on what the metrics of the business are and the stage of the business. But we think that's a pretty, you know, 
fair. We like clean, fair, right. middle of the road terms, and we think that works well. Mm-hmm. And how do you value a company when it's so early stage? <laughs> that's um, that's the magic. Um, I actually have a PhD in applied math that sort of helps me do all of the valuation. Um, but it's a it's one of the most uh, questions that venture capitalists disagree on most of all in the in the profession. So with a more mature company, you have products, revenue, maybe even profits, and there's a formula to generate some multiple on that. But when it's so early stage, it feels so much squishier. How much of this is science and how much of this is art? I would say it's all art. Really? I mean, the way to think about it is it's a discount on a future cash flow. Right. But that's a, an imaginary thing. Right. So it's a discount on your imagination. Um, and some venture capitalists are able to imagine greater scenarios and some venture capitalists have no imagination at all. So, And we haven't really talked about returns. We know you do subsequent rounds. What have the returns been like for the firm? Are you allowed, by the way, hedge funds I know are very much precluded from sharing return information, except with their accredited um, potential investors. Are, do you have similar limitations with venture? I wish we could talk about our returns, but no, um, it's the SEC. It you know frowns upon that. They, for, they do for good reasons. Uh, under understood. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the work you're doing in social impact investing. And in particular, I want to ask you about Defy Ventures and Build.org. Um, we'll talk a little bit about, about each of those. First, what was the motivation to start along a social impact axis as opposed to merely doing early seed stage venture investing? Well, I love investing. I mean, it's been my primary hobby in the world since I was eight. Mm -hmm. um, but as what a career, were you investing in at eight? Well, you know, public equities. Really, I mean, really? through my yes, through through adults. But <laughs> um, so I, you know, I'd back then the the stocks were in the newspaper. So uh -huh. I would come home from school every day, and my the first thing I do is get the newspaper and look up my stocks. Really? Um, yes. But I never considered that I could go into finance as a career. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know any women in finance. It never even passed my mind. My, what I wanted to do was you know, to do something positive for the world, to go into public service. Um, so it was quite a um, you know, great day in my life when I realized that I could actually combine those two things. And we talked about this briefly, that it, it's neither impact first nor ROI first. It's you make the investment in a space that you might have been attracted to because of its impact component, but the investment itself is strictly on the same metrics as any other venture investment. Exactly. I mean, my philosophy here is that you don't change the world by playing small games. You change the world by making billion-dollar companies. And mm -hmm. I want to encourage the sort of world-changer, do-gooder types like me to think bigger and to think more, you know, about building these huge companies that can do good. So I was going to ask you a question, but I kind of think you a answered already. Typically, venture investments are looking for an exit either by going IPO or an acquisition. No different with impact investing. Is that right? No different. Um, in venture capital exits are everything. They are the returns to RLPs. So they really matter. 
So let's talk about those two firms I mentioned that you're a venture advisor to. What is Build.org? Those are volu- those are actually volunteer mm-hmm. um, jobs that I do. Um, Build.org teaches entrepreneurial skills to high school students, and mm-hmm. Defy Ventures teaches entrepreneurial skills to former um, inmates. Mm-hmm. So both very talented. I mean, the world is full of talented entrepreneurs, and I like to you know encourage all of them. Uh, I've read that venture investing is very much a relationship game. Do you do you think that is true in venture investing as well as philanthropy? I definitely think that is true. I mean, I think that being human is a relationship game, but mm. in particular with um, you know, venture capital and philanthropy, you're dealing with these complex coordination problems, which is why they become social problems because they're so hard to solve. So you have to build these huge extensive networks where you can interact with you know the nonprofit sector with government with the for-profit sector um, so we always very much concentrate on building these broad alliances between different people and and let let me um, reference some of the work you did at, in in academics at UC Berkeley you won a number of awards the advocacy award for persuasive writing the jurisprudence award for academic excellence but I want to talk about your thesis, Reforming Federal Tax Policy to Support Social Entrepreneurs. That that received um, some honors as well. How does one reform federal tax policy, and how does tax policy support social entrepreneurs? This is a, a very actually complicated tax policy question. Um, and it has to do with, you know, kind of are you allowed to deploy nonprofit assets into impact investing? So if you're a nonprofit organization yeah. and you have a little spare yeah. cash, you are, yeah, okay. Can so. you put that into a social impact investing type of fund? Right. So you are allowed to deploy nonprofit money into, you know, for profit businesses. Um, you know, the idea of it being a nonprofit is just that you can't ever take it out and buy a yacht or something. Right. It has to kind of stay in the do gooder realm. Uh-huh. As defined by the IRS. Anyway, so the IRS needs, you know, issue has issued rules around this. They're very unclear, um, and you know, they kind of they kind of just make everyone nervous in this sector. So, so, so your uh, I was, thesis helped clarify those rules for the broader. It, it, it suggested how I thought they should be clarified, and mainly that I think they do need to be clarified um, because no one is is certain how to act in this realm, and it's ha- depressing. It's very important because actually the nonprofit sector is incredibly large. Sure, it's it giant. is actually you know. The nonprofit sector is actually six times larger than the entire venture capital industry. Right. And it's um, a form of permanent capital as well. It, it is. It, I mean, well managed anyway. It should persist for forever. Exactly. We think of, you know, we tend to think of anything nonprofit as like, oh, they're these weak, poor, you know, right. cash strapped organizations. But there are those also. <laughs> they definitely have those. But the sector as a whole is an incredibly wealthy sector. Um, and so these regulations really matter about how capital is deployed into the world. The Gates Foundation, the go down the list, the the Bezos Foundation, the Case Foundation, these are giant multi-billion dollar entities, and they're structured to to be um, perpetual. Yes, um, they you know they have a large influence on how how capital is getting deployed, and the tax. 
you know, the tax regime has a large influence. You know, the tax regime basically is controlling how that capital is getting deployed. Let's talk about some of the recent social impact type deals in the public sphere. When when we look at something like Beyond Meat, that IPO has been wildly successful, far more than most of the other sorts of um, IPOs we've seen in, in, in generally. Um, it, at least it's done better than most of the unicorns out there, like it's, Uber and WeWork. It certainly has. It was actually the best. Um, event. I read that it was the best venture-backed IPO in two decades. Really? Yeah. So would you consider that like a social impact uh, investment? I absolutely would. If my fund had existed then, no doubt we would be in that deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the you know that's the type of thing we're doing. Um, what else is taking place in the fake food space, for lack of a better, really, the I guess the better phrase is green foods or low impact, low carbon impact foods. Um, how do you look at that space? What else is coming along there? Oh, we, we're seeing a number of really exciting companies in that space. Food systems are a big problem in the world and yeah. they're quite ripe for disruption, as venture capitalists love to say. Right. Um, some of the companies we have in that space are actually Wild Earth Pets, which is a uh-huh. dog food company. I know we've talked about this company, and you dislike it because you feed your dog uh, steak every night. No, but- no, no. You can't. <laughs> steak is a little rich. We we basically use Purina Pro Plan, which is a commercially developed, and then we put the Stella and Chewy's toppers. And my dogs are so spoiled that despite all that delicious goodness, I'll give them a little... A little scrambled egg or a little something to just make it special. Well, I'm going to send you a bag of our um, vegan dog food, which is made from a uh, mushroom that's actually higher protein than steak. It was developed with a veterinarian. It has all of the amino acids dogs need. And we, ha- I, I jokingly call it our dog save the world thesis because right. it turns out that 25% of the agriculture in the U.S. growing meat just goes to feed dogs and cats. So right. we thought, you know, by replacing some of that with, you know, this vegan alternative that is healthy for dogs, then, you know, that is a is a is an easier way than to ask people to give up their hamburgers and right. has a bigger impact. The other thing about it is that it looks like um, a vegan diet actually has longevity um, effects on dogs. So we're going to be exploring that um, with some academics in the future. One of the dogs that actually lived the longest um, was on an all vegan. It went, you know, the one, I think he was in the top four for the world's record holder of of, you know, dogs that live forever. It was an incredibly long time. I think it was like 185 years in people years. I was on an all vegan diet. (laughs) What's it in in actual solar years? (laughs) I I don't really track the dog world very, very well, aside from my daughter constantly begging me to get a dog. I will try vegan dog food, but (laughs) from an evolutionary perspective, you know, the packs of wolves, they weren't hunting wild mushrooms. They were out hunting... Meat and there seems to be a predilection towards that left to their own devices. Although dogs will eat grass and we feed our dogs on occasion this stew of yams and spinach and other things, carrots, that are really good for their digestive system. My dogs are incredibly spoiled, just so, <laughs> just so you know. We have a pool for the dogs. I, I they occasionally let me go in, but effectively 
the pool is theirs. Well, I, I you'll have to tell me what they think about this right. dog food because I've that. heard that the dogs love it. Um, really? Yeah, we've you know we did tests where we put two dog foods next to each other to see which ones the dogs would eat. And really? They wouldn't go to this. So wow. Yeah. All right. Um. And what else? What else is in the food system space? We have another company called Endless West, um, which can molecularly manufacture food. So- I'm fascinated by that because I saw something not too long ago in Business Week where they were describing Chicken McNuggets not from chicken, but from cells grown yes. in a lab from a chicken. Exactly. It's the same space. It's a little bit different because that is, um, they're not, Endless West isn't doing proteins. That is what we call the cellular agriculture space. Uh-huh. When you're growing a protein, it's very difficult. And we think that that technology is not really here yet in terms of cost. So we haven't gone into that space. Right. Eventually, you got to think they'll figure Eventually, it, out. it definitely will happen. You know, I think it's still 20 years off before it's going to be, you know, get down to the level. Oh, it's of not cost. 100 years. You're, so you're yeah, saying. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's close on the horizon. It's, so 20 it's years 20, from now. I'd say it's 20, 30 years. People will be eating food that did not come from an animal other than a culture. Absolutely. I have tried it and it is wonderful and you cannot tell the difference. Um, The only problem is, is that it's too expensive. You know, it's, it's, it's $2,000 a pound to make. And it shrinks up to almost nothing after you fry it is the problem. (laughs) Um, So, but the, so in other words, this is really just a efficiency and production issue once that is resolved and this becomes competitive price wise, am I understanding this correctly? That sounds like this is inevitable. Then. It's it's definitely inevitable. Yeah. Huh. It's one of those trends in the world that okay. is inevitable. That that's quite amazing. Let, let's move away from the discussion on food systems, because it's both fascinating and horrifying. <laughs> um Frankenfoods. Let's talk a little bit about uh valuations. Um, Mark Andreessen suggested that valuations don't matter. You know, he said if he would have paid double what he paid for Facebook, would it have made any difference? Uh, do you agree or, or disagree? Well, Mark Andreessen is completely right. I never disagree with Mark Andreessen. Okay. But, um, so he's completely right in that you, there's, you know, going to be 15 deals a year that you know, out of the thousands and thousands that you look at that are uh-huh. going to become these, you know, outsized companies. As a venture capitalist, all you need to do is be in those 15 deals. So it doesn't matter what you pay for them. As a matter of practice, um, about if you look at what has actually happened in the world, the valuations of some of the biggest businesses in the world were incredibly low. So, you know, Airbnb first started raising money at a $1.5 million valuation. So you know, if you Uber's would have paid valuation. double, who cares? Yeah. Right. Uber's valuation was at $5 million valuation. You know, So I almost look at it as if you're raising with too high of a valuation, it's like a negative signal. Uh-huh. Um, the low va- I, I'm not sure if it's actually that the entrepreneurs are so good, so they're optimizing the valuation in the seed stage for shots on the goal instead right. of owning a, a lot of the company, or if it's just that those ideas are so contrarian that no one wants them in the seed stage and they don't become obvious. So, you know, kind of what we say is that in the seed stage, the wisest route to take is to optimize for shots on the goal and do uh-huh. a low valuation so you have more flexibility with your capital. And then Meaning every subsequent round, round. Yeah, sub, every subsequent round after that, optimize for valuation. Huh. Quite, quite, quite fascinating. 
So Uber, Airbnb, WeWork. Facebook all Face- had very low. I mean, I don't track WeWork, so I'm not sure about that. But they all had surprisingly low valuations in the seed stage. And then they become these major companies. Mm-hmm. You know, Peloton. Um, it's they, In the seed stage, they're not obvious. And furthermore, these deals, Robinhood is another one. They're, they're also widely shopped um, among oh, really? venture capitalists. Why is too. that? I mean, Uber, I think, went and... Uber was pitching to open rooms of angel investors um, in in the seed stage. Is that so, unusual? Is it um, usually one on one? What what's the typical structure of those? No, I mean it it it, it depends. I mean it it sort of depends on the entrepreneur's network and and the sort of you know the company. But it's a lot of these a lot of the deals that become the biggest they're they're just not apparent at all at the seed stage. So. Um, they're and, out there. They're contrarian. Yeah. Everybody who looks at it, yeah. And it's only with all of this kind of ex post facto um, looking back that we we believe we believe that. Right. So. Hindsight bias, of course. It's so obvious <laughs> after the fact. Yes. Now that it's really Uber successful, was going to be huge. <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. Quite, that that's really quite a uh, quite interesting. Um, so I I go to these regular dinners uh, that we host where. There's so much intellectual capital in New York. We try and um, just grab a group of random hedge fund, economists, academic, media people and see if there's an interesting conversation. I've been to one of those. I know. And it was one where <laughs> I bailed. Uh, I think I was traveling. I missed it. I, I invited did. you to one and then didn't show up. I had the time of my life. Did and you? I'm still, you know, best friends with about four <laughs> of the women that I met at that dinner. It, we, we make it, you know, kind of gender blended. We, it's not just like eight white dudes. We don't love that. <laughs> but- um, you've tried to get some billionaires together for dinner on your own. How has that worked out? Oh, well, so it's a it's an important part of our, you know, social impact capital is that we hold these Jeffersonian dinners um, where we bring, you know, people in the world together to have honest dialogues about issues. Mm-hmm. Um, it's part of our, you know, ha- solving these complex coordination problems. So you actually have a, a an issue to be, if you say Jeffersonian, I assume you mean a debate takes place. It's a, it's not Hamilton a de- style. It's not such a debate. It's a you know it's a it's an honest conversation about about real topics in an incredibly confidential forum. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know it gets harder and harder now in the world to actually have these forums where you can say what you think. Right. So we try and convene those between different stakeholders. And um, this was one that was you know I always joke about because it was a lot of billionaires and I was trying to bring them together and it was basically impossible. Um, you know, they all had different business rivalries against each other and were like, I won't get in the room with him. He sued my company for 20 years. And, and then they all had personal rivalries against each other. Like, I heard he once slept with my daughter. I'm never getting in the room with him. <laughs> and then they all, you know, beyond that, they were all, you know, they had political rivalries. Like, oh, I, I totally disagree with what he thinks about tax policy, so I'm not going to talk to him. And at the end of it, I was like, well, you know, I finally brought it together. But at the end of it, I was like, the good thing about this dinner is that it really has impressed upon me that there is no way these people are getting in the room together to control the world. That is just <laughs> Wait, impossible. there's no no trilateral commission? No, or I mean, as, the a Illuminati? Non, as a non-billionaire, you definitely have this image that they all got in, a, you know, some smoky room, you know, smoke cigars and just 
decide how the world well, how the is going to go. Gonna and I right. was like, I know firsthand now that that is completely impossible. And that's even before their impossible schedules. They're like, great. I, that, that sounds wonderful. Let's do it. I, uh, I have an open lunch in, you know, 2022. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. It's uh, so no Illuminati running the world. Just it's. I mean, you can never be sure because it could have been all an elaborately coordinated plot. A ruse. It was a to ruse to throw you off the trip. About that, but <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure. Hey, hey, this girl Sarah is hot on our trail. We need some ruse to throw her off. <laughs> I know. Let's make it impossible to do a dinner. She'll buy that. Yeah, and then I, I I pulled it off in the end, and then everyone just argued, and it was incredible. And then at the end, they're like, "This is this was more fun than these things usually are." <laughs> what I was going to say was it productive if you got everybody in the room? Did they have an intelligent conversation? We definitely did have a very intelligent conversation, and mm-hmm. I, I I wouldn't call it necessarily so productive um, in that nothing really emerged. In the best ideas, like you know, things emerge out of them, but it it certainly I think you know gave people some understanding that they didn't have coming in. Hmm. Quite quite interesting. Um, I got a bunch of questions I didn't get to. Can you stick around a bit? We have a, a ton more things to talk about. Absolutely. We have been speaking with Sarah Cohn, founder of Social Impact Investing. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and come back for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things venture capital and impact related. You can find that at iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Give us a review on Apple iTunes. Be sure to check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com. You can sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Sarah, thank you so much for doing this. We have been trying to get this together for quite a while. And um, you and I first met on Twitter, where all great venture investments begin their their lives. And... um, I, I, you and I were arguing about something, but in a very polite, respectful way. We were disagreeing about something. I don't remember what it was. Me either. I, In fact, I frequently meet people in the world that say, I was disagreeing with you on Twitter about something, <laughs> I, and I have no recollection. And I have like, uh, I think some of this comes from years and years of blogging. Back in the day when blogs had comments and there would be this robust community associated with a, right. a, a blog. Um, and the big picture during the financial crisis, uh, you know, I'd do a blog post and I'd get 100 comments and like this crazy robust conversation. But eventually tragedy of the commons rears its head and it became overran with uh, trolls and spammers and other sorts of stuff who, hey, there's a crowd here that must have some value. Let me market my junk to that. Um, so I have zero tolerance for nonsense in blog comments, and that's kind of carried over to Twitter. I'm I'm way too cute, quick to mute people, and probably too cute, too quick to block people. 
That is the only way to use Twitter, actually. I think Twitter is a very usable platform if you spend hours and hours curating and right. blocking people. Well, lists, lists we're are... actually incubating a company at Social Impact Capital that yeah. we hope will solve that problem because we think it's actually the root. I mean, we have this information problem, I think, online now where we live in the information age, but the information that exists in the world is sort of getting worse and worse. And we live and in the misinformation acts. age. Yes, exactly. So um, we are building a you know a, a new social network. We call it a you know the idea is that it makes you know our users smarter, and we are kind of partnering with what we call the offline intelligent networks, like the people that went to your dinner. Other examples are you know Milken or WF. Um, so we're kind of bringing those together. So in between your meetings offline, you can banter online um, in a forum. And huh. it's, I think it's going to be incredibly interesting. Does that have a name yet that's public or is it still below the it's radar? It's still below the Stealth radar. Mode. But you will be the first to know. Of All course. right. I'm, I'm intrigued by that. Yeah. So, so I don't remember what we were arguing about with Twitter. Uh, I do think we discussed the soft block on Twitter, right? Uh, the, is it the mute? No. All right. Oh. So the soft block, I'm going to reveal this. And this has been around for forever. And I didn't invent this. But the soft block is simply if someone is following you and you block and then immediately unblock them, what you've effectively effectively done is force them to unfollow you. So then you so you block unblock them. Now they've unfollowed you. You mute them, and it's sort of like a, a, a stealth breakup. I did not know that. Uh, that is Twitter gold. Can, I will tell you that people have have said to me it, it's life changing. Life changing. Just like the only thing that's close to that, it used to be the ability to move the cursor on an iPhone by holding down the tab key, and you can now ghost the cor cursor wherever you want. But the latest technology, which I tweeted, was you now have this ability. I think it came out about a month ago, and or by the time this broadcasts, two months ago, that you can set your phone so that if a caller is not in your phone book, it automatically goes to voicemail, which means no more robocalls. This is why I came on the show, because I knew I was going to get this kind of life tips. Right. This yeah. is right. That's He's... really what the show should be about. Life-changing technology. It's not even tech. It's technology <laughs> settings. Somebody else has made a tech product that's so complicated that in order to derive value from it, you need these little need to know tweaks that, yeah. that suddenly Twitter is more worthwhile. And this iPhone, which is completely useless to me as a phone because of... The robocalls now is actually a fully functioning phone a decade after Steve Jobs re first released it. That's uh, now come up with a name for that. <laughs> right? I tech tweaks for geeks or something um silly like that. So there's there's a bunch I love these digressions. There's there's a bunch of questions I did not get to that I want to work my way through and I'm going to give you a couple of options on some questions and if, if you have a conflict or a, a compliance issue, issue, we'll just wave them off. Um, early, early, early in your career, you did a one-off with Howard Buffett. Do you want to just discuss that really briefly, or do we not want to talk about that? Next. <laughs> that was way early in your career. Um, so Such a corny question. How do you balance doing good with doing well? I'm going to skip that. Um, it's so... It's, 
I get asked that a lot. <laughs> Isn't it a terrible question? It really is. Um, but this is a good question. So you invest in a broad variety of areas. It's not like you have one teeny tiny niche. You're pretty, pretty broad. What areas do you think are ripe for disruption? We've already talked about food processes. What else are you looking And social networks. What else is ripe for disruption? Well, I think as a venture capitalist, your most fundamental belief is that everything is ripe for disruption. So I think healthcare, you know, food systems, education, transportation, housing, water, energy, even social media is all ripe for disruption. And my day is basically an endless stream of ideas in my inbox about uh -huh. how to disrupt all of these fields. Um, I joke that my inbox is pretty much the most inspiring place in the world. Really? That's quite interesting. Yes, it's so good to feel that way about your inbox. I, I have an idea uh, for a new company, but it will disrupt venture investing. Yes. Can I get venture, venture investing venture for that? Venture capital is one of the most disrupt, you know, disruptable fields. Is that true? I was kidding, but... But is that really true? No, it, it definitely is true. I think, uh, you know, I, I, I have a bunch of, it's not really my field, but because, uh -huh. you know, I think venture capital is fantastic, but certainly venture capitalists talk all the time about ideas to disrupt venture capital. VC disrupting VC. <laughs> they do. Well, what, wasn't Andreessen Horowitz a somewhat disruptive venture firm when they yes, rolled out? they absolutely were. What um, were they doing that was so different than the Kleiner Perkins um, of the world? Well, they really popularized the the portfolio. Um, they really sorry. Let's, should we take that again? Go so ahead. Not the chime. <laughs> um, Cal, I, it's eleven o'clock. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll turn off this. Uh, so we both turned off our phone, no, and, and then we, I forgot to turn off my other devices. Um, so okay. I'll, I'll tell you another setting that I love. I don't know if it's on this. Yeah. What I want to do is. Oh is. my God! So first, you pull it from the right hand. Yeah, I didn't even know that existed. Now watch this. Oh my God! Until I leave this location, so now you will not get any noises until you, you, you leave. You just here. really know how to operate this stuff. You know what it how is? I'm this? an idiot savant with uh, this stuff. <laughs> you really should have a show just on this. No, because right. <laughs> basically, I, I'm done. I've given you my four biggest tricks. Now, what do I do for the next two hours? Well, it's good to get it interspersed with the finance. So I'll tell you how I got that. I discovered that trick. Uh, I, I, by the way, I, I Your dad discovered it. I, yeah. <laughs> if it doesn't have anything to do with meat, he's not discovering it. <laughs> um, I really hate whiny journalists complaining about plane delays. Uh, um, and so I've tried really hard not to fall into that group, although it's really, really challenging. Well, I will say most of the arguments I get into on Twitter are when I'm on a plane delay. Well, because you got nothing to do with and you're irritated and it's like, <laughs> ah, but- I said on Twitter, God damn it, why doesn't Apple have a setting? Like, I, I would shut my phone off to do, record something because everybody has a podcast. They all, everybody in the world has this problem. They shut their ringer off to, um, to record a podcast and then they leave and their ringer is off and they miss subsequent calls. Now, there is an entire subgroup of people who say, you turn your ringer on? What sort of a monster are you? <laughs> so I was intrigued by that. But the other group said, um, when I asked this question on Twitter, yeah, there's a setting. You could either turn your ringer off for an hour or even better, turn your ringer off until you leave a given location. And I'm like, why didn't I know about this? And the answer is, these things are so complex and so many new features come out 
it's impossible to keep up with well, all of Well, that's it. actually a perfect illustration of the thinking behind our social media platform is that what so everyone thinks that Stuart Brand said information wants to be free. It's mm-hmm. been spread all around the internet that he right. said that. The whole and, earth catalog yeah. and blah blah so, blah. I feel somewhat sorry for him because he didn't actually say that. If what you did sort he of say? the full quote was, you know, he said something like information wants to be expensive because the right information at the right time just changes your life. Sure. It's the most valuable thing in the world. On the other hand, information wants to be free because it's so easy to replicate and pass along now. Right. And he said these things are going to be competing. Um and so, context matters. Exactly. So um, so social media is fantastic for kind of getting you the right information at the right time. Um, and so we're kind of, you know, creating the best platform in the world for that. Right. Except for that so, whole my new ambition, that whole undercutting democracy thing. Oh, we're, we're going to try and not not do that. Not you're not going to destroy <laughs> that's, our. That's our aim. Yeah, that's fantastic. On, that's on the mission statement. So, uh, OK, so maybe I have another technology tip, but it's just a website. QuoteInvestigator.com. Oh, yeah. Which is awesome because you find out that all these quotes that you've been using your whole life are nonsense. I know. And and especially Albert Einstein pretty much said nothing clever. Nothing about compounding, (laughs) nothing about hydrogen and stupidity, nothing about. There are all these uh, Einstein, Mark Twain. Marcus Aurelius. Go go down the list of these people who you constantly see quoted. Um, it turns out that most of these quotes came about decades after they passed away. Yes, and and you can track and quote investigator does the genesis of these quotes based on when they first appeared in print, when they first appeared in a book, and if it's. And whether or not it's in the person's body of, of writing, body of work. And so if something shows up 50 years after Mark Twain dies, probably not a Mark Twain <laughs> quote, which is, which is pretty amazing. So the public markets are fairly efficient. They do a pretty good job at figuring out what an appropriate valuation is relative to future discounted cash flow. How efficient are the private markets? How efficient are venture capital investing relative to what is or isn't know, uh, known? It seems more opaque than we we see in the public markets. Yeah, it's certainly more opaque. Um, the information isn't public. In fact, I don't even know most of the performance of my very close friends in venture capital. So I always describe it like running a venture capital firm. I'm running a Olympic race, but I don't even know what the times are of any of the people that I'm running against. Right. Um, so there's just not this information that you have in, in the public markets, in, in private markets. And then simultaneously, they just have two different incentive systems. So the, the private markets are basically these max auctions. And by the time you get to the public markets, um, you know, you're no longer a monopoly seller of your stock and you can't walk away to avoid setting a low price and there are no transfer restrictions. So you're merging these two different incentive systems into each other. And I think it's like, you know, merging a car onto a high speed freeway. There's only a few drivers in the world that can really do that very well. So it's why I am incredibly- You don't drive a lot, do you? I don't, no, I'm not a great driver. Uh, It's why I am, um, you know, glad to be in early stage investing because by the time the companies get to that stage, you know, for me, it's like, is this going to be a hundred X on my return or a thousand X? And that's, you know, my only worry there. 
How do you measure how impactful a given investment is? We've, we've talked about how do you measure how successful something is, and that basically is the return on investment. But how can you determine whether or not something is moving the needle? So um, this was this is this is always a big topic of debate in my firm. And I when I originally started out my firm, I was dead set against um, any kind of impact investing metrics. Finally, my partner convinced me that these impact you know us us tracking an impact metric would be a good idea um, because LPs really really wanted this. Um, you know he thought for marketing the fund, he thought impact LPs would really, really care about impact metrics. And I said, fine, one metric, it has to be something related to actually running the business. So that is what we do um, when we have a legal agreement with our entrepreneurs, when we make an investment that there's one metric, they come up with it. I sort of have to approve of it because I don't want something that is not inherently related to running the business. Um, mm-hmm. When you're an early stage startup, I, I always tell my entrepreneurs, because they're real do-gooders, always want to solve every problem at once. And pick I one. say, pick one, solve it. My, you like you know that by giving us your capital, we're working on all the world's problems. So right. you can rest assured that they are all, you know, progress is being made in all of them. You need to just get your one done. Is this for your entrepreneurs or your LPs or my, both? My LPs do not care about, you know, social impact at the moment. I'm hoping to attract some LPs into the firm that care about social impact. Um, I would I would imagine given the I'm I'm looking for the right word and wokeness is in it. <laughs> Given the rise of ESG investing and the push towards better governance and and more diverse investing, that we would see more institutional investors into um, something like social impact. But you're relatively a relatively yeah, young firm, I mean, relatively we're small. We're talking to them, and I think someday we'll we'll be incredibly popular with them. But in the, in the beginning, they typically don't like to come into fund ones. Right. They yeah. ha- they have to. You have to see a three year or a five year track record. They want to like see that. you know ca- that we can return cash to our back to our investors. Right. Can what you do at the seed level scale? So if you get a Calpers and some of these other giant firms. Maybe a little bit of SoftBank because they have more money than they know how to intelligently invest. Can you scale up to tens of billions of dollars, we, or by by nature, does early seed have to be much smaller? No, um, that is one of the the issues that I paid a lot of attention to and how I structured the firm. Mm-hmm. So we can scale up to large AUM. Um, really, and I actually have a plan for that. I feel like Elizabeth Warren. I have a plan for that. Right. Um, she has but, a plan for everything. <laughs> yeah. Too many plans. Um, Medicare for all. Are you going to invest in that or or, or are we going to see a disruption of health care from the private sector instead of the political sector? I personally think that we are Americans, so we will see disruption from healthcare come from the private sector, Mm -hmm. but who knows? What's going on with the Buffett, Amazon, Chase health care program that started a couple of years ago? Haven't oh, heard anything about that. Uh, yeah, it's right. I haven't. I I haven't heard much about that either. I mean, they seem to be attracting good people, and I look forward to what they're going to do. Hmm. Interesting. So we've seen all sorts of studies that suggest that the bulk of venture capital is Silicon Valley, New York, Boston, and then a vast wasteland around the rest of the country. Steve Case is doing some mm-hmm. some. Uh, 
Rise of the Rest, they literally take bus trips to different cities to do it. But most of the rest of the country isn't seeing a lot of venture activity. Uh, what do you see across the country geographically for where entrepreneurs and, and venture capitalists can find each other? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we invest all across the U.S., and mm-hmm. you know, some of our best-performing companies are outside of the U.S. Um, where, where else have you invested? So not just U.S. like New York and, and San Francisco, but global. What, what other countries are you investing in? We've in, we we have an investment in Africa. We have an investment in the UK. Um, London is becoming a great location for for VC. Really? Um, yeah. Why is that? Brexit. Uh, I have no idea. Really, I think it's I think it's a, you know it's still a cosmopolitan city, sure. but the engineers you know it's it's still somewhat livable. Brexit has depressed the prices. Um, so it becomes more reasonable. Yeah, I wasn't kidding when the I engineers, said Brexit. The engineers' salaries are you know. They're more reasonable than in half of yeah, here. in half of San Francisco, and right. New York is particularly bad because the you know all the fine you know Goldman pays enormous salaries to the engineers. Right. So they're they're stealing all of the um, best talent. Doesn't that sort of vacillate depending on how well the stock market does? When the market's doing well. All these quants ends up going to Wall Street. When it's doing poorly, they go to tech companies. Exactly. I mean, all of these are markets, so everything vacillates. So Cyclical. we um, have built, you know, a company where we can do deals anywhere. We just want to do the best deals in the world. And um, before we get to our favorite question, I just have to ask you uh, about a magically delicious box of Lucky Charms. That you snuck into the White House? Can you can you explain that? We did not sneak that into the White House. You are uh, you are allowed to bring snacks into the White House. Oh, so you didn't sneak it in. No. You brought it in. Yes. So you do not deny. I'm going to imagine you're at the water the uh, <laughs> the impeachment hearings. You do not deny that you brought an authorized <laughs> box of Lucky Charms into the Truman Lanes on the White House. The Is this not delicious? We had a breakfast. Um, we had a breakfast bowling session. Why? Uh, <laughs> well, these um it was just a it was, you know, something this was the Obama White House. Uh-huh. Um it was just something that we we they invited us to do because I'm a big bowler. I really like bowling and we right. had some um you know, we Tens were doing of- some work with them and it was it was a fun thing. So what we invited was- some of our advisory board members okay, to co- so, go bowling with us. So you skipped over the meaty part. What was the work you were doing for the Obama White House? Not allowed to talk about that? It's all NSA, deep state, secret? We like to work with, I mean, we like to work with everyone. Uh-huh. So, you know, we'll we'll work with anyone who asks us. We'll, you know, show up anywhere. That's fair. Do anything. We're very nonpartisan group. There you go. That's fair. So let, let's jump to our favorite questions, one of which I changed just for you. What are you streaming, downloading, or watching on TV these days? Because I can't ask you a car question. Right, <laughs> you, you learned that the last time. Yes. Um, let's see. And I... by the way, it turns out that that's a much more interesting question. Because, it, it, it is such a good question. Because everybody who's over 50 has probably has a car. And lots of people under 50, not only or under 40, not only don't they have cars... Half of them don't even have licenses. It's a fantastic question. It gives you someone's age. It gives you um, their, you know, interest, social class, right? And it gives you how good their memory is. 
about the car, everybody remembers their first car. Their first car? car? Yeah, of course. I have zero idea. I mean, I know what I know what brand it was. Or sorry, you call those models. I know what model it was. What model was it? It was a Buick. Right. Yeah. And that, that is all I, I would remember. actually call I that the make. Oh, that's the make? That's the make. The model oh, is the Buick Skylark or the Barry, Buick Grand Prix. Barry, this is like me inviting you on a finance show and going, what is the difference between a top and a blouse? Um, you don't know, do you, right? So a blouse, I would, I would be able to fake that. I would say, <laughs> well, a blouse is usually a standalone um, uh, as opposed to a top, which is part of an outfit with a top and a bottom. <laughs> Completely wrong, not even. But it sounds good, right? I could BS with the best of them. What is the difference between a top and a blouse? Um, usually just a top is more informal and a blouse is more formal um, with buttons down. No, I don't the, like that. I like yeah. top as part of a set, a top and a bottom, a blouse freestanding. We'll I'm going to go with my we'll answer. We'll let you redefine the, right. the terms. There, there was, if I was in Ohio, I could get away with that. <laughs> but here in New York, I actually have to be uh, reality-based. I can tell you about the car I want, though. Have what you car seen do the you new want? electric Porsche? It's so beautiful. The Taycan. Yeah. Yes, really yeah. handsome beautiful car. Beautiful car. Have you seen the new Ford Mustang E SUV that no. came out yesterday? It came out yesterday? No. Yeah. No, so they know. basically took a Ford Mustang... Which is a six or eight cylinder gasoline car. It's only been around for fifty eight years, so who cares? And they turned it into sort of an SUV, and it's that, electric, and all it's electric? all all electric, competing with the uh, um, Model X and the Model Three of Tesla. The interior looks like it's pure Tesla. Wow! Just ripped it right off of of Elon Musk. Poor Elon. Um, he's doing okay. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully he comes out of this. I like. He, you know, arguably Elon has already won because everybody Elon is definitely won. Right, everybody yeah. is now doing electric cars. So whether Tesla survives or not, he's already dented the universe. Every time um, Elon gets criticized on Twitter, which is quite a bit, I I post the GIF of him landing the rockets. Right. And I say, anyone that can do this deserves at least six months of criticism free living. Right. But he had that five years ago and now <laughs> that six months has elapsed. It, well, at least should, it should get you at least a decade. I mean, that's pretty impressive stuff. You know, mushing Solar City in with Tesla turns out to have been a mistake, but... Um, but you got to give him props mistakes for- Mistakes were made, but you know- Right, move fast, break yeah, things. Yeah, everyone makes mistakes. He, he is a very consequential entrepreneur, and I'm fascinated by what he does, and I think- People slag him way too much. I, I agree. And I think that, you know, I think what's great about him is that I hope he's, you know, he, a lot of our entrepreneurs are inspired by him. And mm -hmm. I think that he is inspiring a whole generation of young entrepreneurs to think bigger and to do bigger things in the world. The other day, I rarely flick around television anymore. I used to just sort of randomly rotate and see what's on. But I did this the other day. Actually, to be honest, I turned on the TV and what was on was a, uh, well, since the show ended, it has to be uh, an older one, but um, a Big Bang episode, the one where it's Thanksgiving and they go to a soup kitchen to serve food and Elon Musk is on the episode <laughs> cleaning dishes. And I have to tell you, it, it's such a charming episode. You got to give a guy like that yeah. props. Yeah. All right, so let's get to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Tell us what you're either streaming, downloading, or, or watching, be it video or audio. Well, I am um, 
I am streaming um, Silicon Valley, the HBO cable so show, but I can ne- I always fall asleep. I can never make it through. You know, you don't have to watch it when it broadcasts. Yeah. You can. No, no, I, I watch it. I yeah, usually I, I keep trying to make it through the episodes and then I fall asleep. What time so, are you starting? Is uh, no, I, right before bed. This is like my bedtime thing. I watch a television. That's what show I'm suggesting bed. is yeah. watch that the next day. Watch that on a Monday. <laughs> At eight instead of a Sunday at ten. That would be a good idea, but all right. Um, so Silicon Valley, love it. Yeah, it's what a fantastic else? show. In fact, it's almost too realistic. Right, and this um, is the last final season. I know. I'm very sad about it. Yeah. Um, well, the I, only good news is when it's over, I'm gonna. I just hope the VCs get an exit. You know, that's a happy ending for me. <laughs> um, the whole Hooli purchase thing is oh, that just, was, that, just hilarious. It was fantastic, but it is very um, accurate about how quickly fortunes in Silicon Valley can rise and fall. Come and go very quickly. Yes. What? Uh, give us another show. What else are you watching? Mm, well, I'm a big West Wing fan as well. Uh-huh. So I've watched Do you like anything Sorkin single. has done? I do. In fact, I just saw his play To Kill a Mockingbird. So amazing, right? Broadway, which was incredible. Um, With Jeff Daniels? Yeah, he was fantastic in it. The whole cast, yeah, everybody was really, really, really uh, good stuff. And I, he, he's my number one person that I would want on Twitter that isn't on Twitter. They are I'm not... hoping that he'll come to our social media. Huh, that, that uh, could be interesting. Site. But yeah, fantastic stuff. So if you like West Wing, you know, the show he Sorkin did before West Wing was a delightful little show called Sport Night. And it only lasted like two and a half seasons but it was really, really good. I'll have to look that look at that. You up. can stream that yeah. if you like that sort of fast-paced, rapid dialogue, but a different context. Not in the White House. It's all um, they're putting on a, 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 an ESPN type show, and all the characters are great. And I haven't seen it in years, but I remember really loving that show and was hugely disappointed when it was canceled. All right, so we got Silicon Valley, got West Wing. Give me one more. Anything you're downloading or streaming? So Eric Weinstein, Weinstein, he Uh has a great new podcast called The Portal, which I listen to a lot. He had Peter Thiel on the first episode and then Werner Herzog in the second episode. So that's fantastic. Really? I love getting new... uh... He's my favorite new media star in that he has these, somewhat like you, he has these very, you know, deep, real conversations with Eric Weinstein? Yeah. Oh, okay. Wow, this is relatively new. Mm-hmm. Thoughtful and insightful conversation. All right, I'm definitely checking this out. He looks vaguely familiar. This podcast does something different. All right, I'm definitely there. I'm definitely going to check that out. Um, what's the most important thing people don't know about Sarah Cohn? Um... I think it's that my IRR is above my BMI, and that is the main <laughs> metric that I run my life by. So your IRR is above your BMI, and and is this a metric that we see elsewhere? It's the it's the most important uh, metric for the woman investor. So you're encouraging, though, um, either very high IRR or very low BMI. <laughs> you don't want to give people no, the wrong. Not, not too low. Not too low. So that that's kind of interesting. Yeah, mostly just high IRRs. There you go. How about your mentors? Who who has guided your career um, in the world of venture investing? Oh well, so the person that really taught me um, venture capital, and this was a long time ago, um, 
before anyone cared about more women being in venture capital was mm-hmm. Rob Hayes. Um, and it's quite a funny story because he's a very famous venture capitalist now. He led the seed round into Uber. He's been a longtime partner at First Round Capital. He stays somewhat under the radar, but in Silicon Valley, he's extremely you know, well-known as, as a great investor. Uh-huh. But back then, when he was my mentor, uh, he really wasn't. He didn't ha- quite have that profile, but I thought he was the smartest, you know, person investing in VC. So I basically just showed up at his doorstep um, at Omidyar Network and said, "Hi, I'm Sarah, and I'm going to learn venture capital from you. Don't worry, you don't have to pay me or anything." Um, and he said, "Like, okay, well, you seem, you know, pretty smart and hardworking. Um, I guess I'll teach you venture capital, but really? I'm going to pay you." Yeah. So I learned from him, and it was great because back then, you know, he. He actually had the time to really teach me, you know, everything that he thought about venture capital. And now I get to go. Um, yeah, I was, you know, mentored by this extremely famous um, and and well-known venture capitalist. So that's my advice to young people is that when you're seeking out your mentors, like seek the people that you know are going to be famous in 10 years and learn from <laughs> them, right. not the there greats of today. Yeah. I, I literally... Wrote. Uh, I re- literally tweeted the other day. There's there's a technical indicator that I think is just junk, the Hindenburg Omen, and that name was was the hint that it's junk. But I advise people the best way to use this is only follow the signals that precede big market crashes. Ignore the rest of them. So you basically have the same philosophy. Go find a mentor who's going to be incredibly successful and famous and find them 10 years before they become successful and just attach yourself. Exactly. To and if you're going to be a good venture capitalist at all, then you'll probably be pretty good at doing that too. Um, so. And any other VCs influence the way you look at the world of venture, investing, startups? I'm really not so much influenced by other VCs. I'm, I'm influenced by other areas of finance, um, particularly, I mean, hedge funds, particularly like the very math heavy and research heavy hedge fund managers. I love, you know, I have a PhD in, in math that I've done a lot of our portfolio construction work with and a lot of our evaluation work with, and we're kind of doing some advanced work there. And then in due diligence as well, I love due diligence. I describe it as a combination of library research and financial modeling, spy work and gossip. And it's basically the most fun that you could ever have trying mm-hmm. to understand the world. And every deal we do, I feel like, is this incredible sort of romp through some obscure you know, realm of the world that I then gain a lot of knowledge about, which is what I love. So huh. I'm 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 much more influenced by those investors rather than venture capitalists who I like to mostly make fun of um, <laughs> by saying that it's an, it's an industry where all the decisions are made by men's guts and the guts of their wives. And I only added that last part because I was saying that once to a very um, famous and prestigious venture cap. I said, you know, to this very famous and prestigious venture capital, like, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm working in an industry that's really just run by men's guts. And he was like, Sarah, that is completely untrue. You know, that is very offensive. Um, my firm is also run by the gut feelings of my wife. <laughs> she is an incredibly important part of my firm. And I was like, okay, well, this, so he kind this of explains missed, a lot. <laughs> he kind of missed the point that it was- Yeah, the, I wasn't making a comment about gender. It was, was about guts. Yeah, I was making right. a comment about gut. Right. Talk, talk, about, yeah. uh, talk about missing the uh, forest for the trees right there. Let's, let's talk about books. What are some of the things you've uh, really liked to read? What do you like to recommend? 
Tell us what you're reading these days. Well, I have a um, 20-month-year-old daughter, so I mainly spend my time reading to her. And uh-huh. there's this fantastic series of books that was written Everybody by... Everybody poops. I'm, I'm familiar <laughs> with it. Sure. It was... Uh, the series of books was written by a quantum physicist, and it just boils scientific principles down to baby language. So is that true? It is. It's the, it's like quantum computing for babies, neural networking for babies, Come organic on. chemistry for babies. Oh, my God. That sounds hilarious. So I read these to her every day, and I have for now two years. Um, You just solved a holiday (laughs) present um, issue for me, for somebody who I know who is really smart and just had a baby, and that's a perfect setup. I'm a big fan of these books because they're the only books that are both interesting to me and her. Right. So we love them, and it was it's, it was quite. It works on both levels. It really does. And her her fourth word was Adam. Right. Um. So, it, you know, I so it was. It's been fantastic. Um. We really love these books. So Quantum these are my favorite mechanics books mechanics for, for babies. babies. Yes. That's and hilarious. my dream in life is that someone will write these about finance. So we need like monetary policy for babies, option trading for babies. So funny. This really needs to happen. What What a genius idea. Um, <laughs> any other non infant books you might want to mention um even if you haven't read them recently um there's a book called mating which is a book of fiction that i love mating um, by yeah, who by norman rush okay um, and it's a it's a book about you know sort of the main themes of my life which are you know creating a better world and all the intricacies and humanness that goes on in that process. i like it Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Ah, well, this was one of the times. So I know we have this mutual friend who's a venture capitalist um, named Josh Wolf at Lux Capital. Yes. Um, who is at this dinner. And so he, so my, the one portfolio, the one company in my anti-portfolio, which is the things, the companies where you make a mistake. And you didn't it. invest in. I didn't invest. He tried to get me into the seed round of this company called Citizen. And I said, you know, it's kind of a, a safe, it's an app that's a safety 911 alert for people. I said, Josh, that is, you know, it, it would be very important to the world, but it's completely ridiculous. No one will use it. I'm not even going to meet with the entrepreneur and waste their time. Um, really? I turned out to be completely wrong. 10% of New York City is now on this app. Really? Um, yeah. And, and what does it do? It just tells you it's like safety alerts about what is going on. And then now you can also kind of take eyewitness accounts and report things to it. So, so you're going to laugh about this. I know Josh pretty well, and he never mentioned this company to me. But Erica Morrow is my chief operating officer at RWM, and she's the one who showed that app to me. And it's also a site. And it shows you arrest here, person with a gun there, just all sorts of crazy things that have been filed through 911. They must just be scraping the information off a public source. Yeah, they definitely started with that and they've kind of expanded from there into more things that you can do to keep the world safe as a citizen. But um, so my takeaway from that, well, first of all, aside from always listening to Josh Wolf, is that you should <laughs> you should never Good advice. Good you advice. should never make venture investments with your gut because your gut is going to be wrong. Didn't so we you, stay away from that now. But didn't you learn that from the other VC's wife's gut? <laughs> I, I did. I mean, it's, it's just amazing how all like, Everything just makes you like all the pressures in the industry are causing you to feel like your gut is, you know, the best gut out of all the guts. And you have to constantly kind of be saying to yourself, 
don't make gut decisions. Don't make gut decisions. So, so true story. One of the things, I'm going to tell my war story, which makes the guys in my office cringe. So I began on a trading desk, and eventually you learn how to listen to your own body's reactions. And I had a very identical experience to you where I would – Someone would bring me a trading idea, and I go, oh, that company, it's the worst. And after you miss a couple of good trades that way, you eventually figure out, oh, if my reaction is this is the worst, then most other people's reaction is this is the worst. And based on the work of Gene Fama, it's probably reflected in the stock price, and now it's a good opportunity to buy it. So eventually, I learned how to become more sensitive to my own reaction to something, but it took missing a lot of great opportunities to become aware of, oh, everybody must feel this way. And therefore, it's a contrarian indicator, not a don't listen to your gut is kind of the takeaway from that. That's an excellent way to frame it. Yes. It's it's kind of interesting. I'm fascinated by the fact that you were repulsed by a VC who did the exact same thing. And yet, human nature, you couldn't help yourself. The world is full of hypocrites, and I don't exempt myself, but, you know, at least I'm trying. You know, that's not so much hypocritical as just the human condition. We can't help but be a slave to our emotions to some degree. It's it, also the, the only one. I mean, I think more, most VCs have more than one in their right. pockets. There's so literally doing pretty well. There's literally a cognitive bias called the bias bias that... We all have a tendency to observe <laughs> these biases in other people right, and, and be completely in blind in our, ourself. Like I'm always point, pointing out to people, oh, you're, it's confirmation bias. And, and of course, I'm as guilty of it as anybody else. But we're blind to it. It's, it's, it's quite amazing. Um, what do you do for fun? What do you do when you're not reading quantum physics uh, for babies to your daughter? Well, I started this social impact venture capital firm that you mm-hmm. might have heard of. So I work a huge amount um, and don't have too much time for fun. I hear it's not legislatively mandated to have hobbies, so right. I just don't have any. So you're not skiing I'm a big advocate or for just not climbing Kilimanjaro or anything like that? Yeah, I pretty much just work and then take care of my baby. But That's I do, my, I take my baby um, to art galleries. We go to art galleries a lot because right. we live incredibly close to the art galleries in Chelsea. Right. So it's a very convenient thing for us to uh, do. Is she entertained by this? She loves it. And so I've started this Twitter account to you know record her reactions to the art called Ada Baby Art Critic. And what so are, that's my hobby, I guess. What are her reactions to art? Well, she's had this incredibly complex language of art criticism. So when she was a really little baby and she couldn't move her neck, I would sort of hold her in front of the the works and then she would she would make a little sound like when she wanted to go to the next one. And sometimes she would look for hours and I'd be like, okay. Really? Yeah. So, so then, representational, yeah. contemporary, impressionist, what she We just basically go like? to whatever is close by. Right. Yeah. But, so um, geographic. Yeah, geographic. Like anything Geogra- in the, you know. Does she have a preference? Does she like? She uh, definitely has favorite artists. And they don't, the the disappointing thing to me is that they don't match mine. So. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah. I, no, I say it's good. It's good that you have your own characteristics. But so I what does she like? she would. Um, she like well. She was. I always call her. She was born in the year of uh, the month of Saitwambly. So they were okay. having a huge Saitwambly retrospective right. um, at 
um, Kagosian. So we went to that every single day. And she and loved she it. she loved it. Yeah, really? she, those, she would look at those for hours and hours. So I always, but now she can do even better. Now now that she's two, she's making her own works. And she can even, I think she can even do better work. Than have, her, have her tastes evolved at all? <laughs> They definitely. Uh, they no. She tends to like like so. She she really she seems to really like Damien Hurst um, a lot. Like which, the shark in yeah, the, the shark. formaldehyde yeah, that's up so, in uh, point seventy two. I, I really don't like him. I think he's you know kind of banal and commercial. But she loves banal him. is yeah. the right word. Fraud. Whatever. Um. So yeah. So we. So we. Duchamp. And then, the, Do you like the urinal uh, in the corner? She's never seen any Duchamp. We then there was so I love Sarah Z and we went to the Sarah Z show, which I loved, and she didn't like it at all. I was huh. like, I don't, I don't know, but like maybe you just don't really have good taste in art because you're just a baby. Or maybe she has <laughs> the purest taste in art. Have you taken her to the? You know, MoMA just finished this wonderful renovation, and there's a ton of 20th century contemporary American artists, and if you like. That sort of post-impressionist. Yeah, she loves those. I mean, we go to the Met sometimes. We go okay. to MoMA. She likes. She loves Picasso. She she really likes all. Like she likes a lot of the old art. Very right. much. So, I mean, it's going to be hilarious. I'm thinking like Jackson Pollock would be entertaining for a baby, or maybe Rothko, which I've evolved very much. She uh, liked Roy Lichtenstein a lot. Oh, when she well, was giant a baby. cartoons. Yeah. Why not yeah. giant comics? Everybody likes that as a as a whatever. So then, when she was a little bit older, she then would turn her head like dramatically away from the painting when she didn't want to look at it anymore. And then, when she was even older, not then if she liked it, she would point. And now that she's older, she can say no. So she'll, she'll go in front of them in the paintings and go, no, 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 no. That's funny because that's what I'm like in a lot of museums. My wife, who who used to teach fashion illustration and design, is dragging me around to every museum in the world world and every now and then but i don't repeat it usually i just look at something and go no and on to the next <laughs> um what's the name of the twitter account for it's your called daughter Ada baby art critic a d a baby art critic that's hilarious um, so that's my hobby that's a good hobby that now i know what you do for fun that is a good hobby <laughs> so so let's talk about within the world of startups and venture investing what are you most optimistic about and what are you least optimistic or most pessimistic about? Well, I am still very optimistic about venture capital. Um, I think it's the most effective way to deploy capital that man has ever invented. And mm -hmm. I am incredibly excited that I am able to start deploying it to solving some of the world's, you know, most tough problems, which is this, you know, putting venture capital towards these problems has really never been tried at all at scale. So I think my fund you know, this ability to do this is going to be incredibly exciting. And I'm excited to see what we can do in the world because we've already done so much, you know, in the first three years of our existence. What I am the most pessimistic about is immigration. And I think that America's entire competitive advantage used to be, you know, that all the smartest people in the world uh, wanted to come to America, and mm -hmm. all the hardest working people in the world wanted to come to America. What is it? Fifty percent of Silicon Valley C-suite. Yeah, are yeah. So it's you know, fifty-five percent of all of America's billion-dollar startups had an immigrant founder. Wow. So this is That's incredibly amazing. important. Immigration is incredibly important to the engine of the American economy, and I see us as a culture sort of becoming less welcoming to these people. Not very smart long term, is it? Not very smart for you know for for competition reasons, you know, in my opinion, if you walk a thousand miles with your child on your back and you apply, you know, you you 
fit under Come American asylum laws, Come on in. You're extremely welcome in my country. Right. So you're an American. You know, if you do that, you're an American to me. So uh, I'm under the assumption that the past three years is a temporary aberration and a setback, and it eventually it will revert to what the prior 200 years are like, although I could be wrong. I hope so, because we are an, an immigrant society, and sure. one of the greatest things about America is our ability to incorporate all these ideas and differences into a tolerant society. I don't think there's any country in the world that has done that as successfully as we have. And it's been a huge advantage to the economy. Mm -hmm. So to the extent that we are are turning in the opposite direction, our economy is going to get worse. And I, I, I very much worry about that. So a recent graduate comes up to you and says they're interested in career um, either as a venture capitalist or in a startup. What sort of advice would you give them? Well, I tell them that, you know, I, I try to find out what they care about most in the world. And I say, do not compromise between that and making money because you can do both. Um, it's mm -hmm. the fundamental premise of my fund that you can, you know, accomplish what you most want to accomplish and make money. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do that and you just decide that you want to make money, you eventually end up incredibly old and bitter very quickly. Right. I'm often told that I, you know, people th seem to think I'm a lot younger than I am, which is always funny to me. And I, I, I think the reason is because I still have ideals and that makes you just appear incredibly young to the world. So I, it's like some miracle face cream to just have ideals and continue to execute them because most people are giving those up. Huh. That That's depressing. Um <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm meaning it's depressing to hear that most people are giving up their ideals. And our final question, what do you know about the world investing today? I'm going to say that again. Our final question, what do you know about the world of startups and venture capital investing today that you wish you knew, can I say 20 years ago, <laughs> yes, 15 like years ago, 30? It's not 30 years ago. No, um, I mean, I so I, I'm somewhat late into the industry, so I, I wish that I'd known that women could go into this field. Because I you would think have they weren't allowed. In. I I didn't that that thought didn't cross my mind, you know, because I was a child. So it's it's more that um, you know it's it more that if you don't see it, then it doesn't cross your mind that that's a career path for huh, you. That's interesting. So I think that now there's all these incredibly amazing women that are inspirations to me in venture capital, like Mary Meeker, who just raised sure. the first billion dollar venture capital fund. Uh, you know, women what's her new led. shop called? She it's left Kleiner Perkins. Yeah, right? she she started her own shop called Bond. They just raised a huge fund, and so now it's it's extremely easy for me now to go. Oh, I want to be like her. Um, right. Let me mansplain role models to you. <laughs> how important that is. That that's interesting. I don't. I never really thought of that. Um, but I guess yeah, it makes a, a lot of sense. It's a weird thing to think about. Me uh, think about because I, I go why? Like I must have been really stupid that it never crossed my mind. But it just it literally didn't. I mean, finance was my main hobby. It was my main love in life, and it never occurred to me that it could be a career. It just just goes to show you that having role models make a big difference, and that's why. These things seem to take generations to change. It does. He, yeah. he mansplained to her. Um, <laughs> you are correct. A lot of the mansplaining is correct. All right. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for doing this. We have been speaking with Sarah Cohn. She is the managing partner at Social Impact Capital. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure to look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, where you can see any of our previous 300 or so conversations that we've had over the past five plus years. 
We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my weekly column. You can find that at bloomberg.com slash opinion. Sign up for my daily list of reads. That's at ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff. That helps me put together these conversations each week. Carolyn O'Brien is our audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.